HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. According to the USDA, an estimated 14% of American households were food insecure at least some time during the year in 2014, meaning that they lacked access to enough food for an active, healthy life for all household members. Although not typically associated with institutes of higher education, evidence suggests that food insecurity among U.S. college students is rising and may in fact be higher than the national average for all age groups. A 2014 survey at the University of Oregon, for example, Example, found that 59% of students at Western Oregon University had recently experienced food insecurity. Joining me today to discuss the issue of campus hunger are three experts on the subject, Sarah Goldrick Rabb, Nate Smith-Tighe, and Triada Stampus. Sarah is a professor of educational policy studies and sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the report Hungry to Learn, which analyzed food insecurity among college students, community college students across the country. Nate is a PhD student at Michigan State University, my alma mater, by the way, and serves as the director of the Michigan State University Student Food Bank. And finally, uh, Triada is the vice president for Research and Public Affairs at the Food Bank for New York City. Sarah, Nate, Triada, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. All right. Do we have Sarah, Nate, do we, ha- do we have you guys on the line? Yep. Yes, Happy right here. All right. Wonderful. Um, Sarah, let's, I would like to uh, start with you. Can you um, kind of kick us off on the subject and, and, and tell us about your research on this issue? Um, specifically, how prevalent is campus hunger and how is, it, how is it different than what we typically think of as like the stereotypical college thrift that so many of us have experienced? 
Yeah, well, this is a really important question. I think, honestly, that many of us have fallen prey to those stereotypes that, for example, being on a ramen noodle diet is right. just what college is. And, you know, when I began studying uh, undergraduates who were receiving financial aid way back in 2008, I probably had some of those thoughts in my mind, too. I, I was going out with a team of researchers just to find out what life was like for students who came from low-income families while they were in college. And we thought we would be hearing about difficulty buying textbooks, um, you know, a hard time paying for a laptop, maybe not having a cell phone, those sorts of things. And we started doing interviews. This was with 3,000 students at 42 public colleges and universities in Wisconsin. And all of a sudden, my team started to come back saying things like, the woman says that her biggest struggle in college is finding enough food to eat. And another person was struggling with housing. And another person was saying, you know, I skip meals regularly because there just isn't enough money. And we were really pretty taken aback. And so we started to pursue this question of prevalence and how much was this happening in higher education. And at this point, we've done a, a pretty wide range of studies. The vast majority of them have been in Wisconsin, but we did do this report, Hungry to Learn, which um, involved community colleges across the country. And that study suggested that about one in five of the community college students we surveyed were what you would call very low levels of food security. Uh, which would sort of meet that qualification of hunger. These were people who were missing meals regularly for a lack of food, um, not just, you know, not eating the food they would want to eat, that sort of thing. And, um, and it's more prevalent at two-year schools, but we're finding it at four-year schools as well. Okay. And what, what, what can you tell us, what does the, the face of hunger look like in this context? So are there certain areas, geographically speaking, age group? demographics that are disproportionately uh, affected by food insecurity well, at camp I mean, on campuses? The, prob the problem is that most people and most surveys are still not asking these questions of undergrads, so we really aren't able to say much about geography, to be honest with you. And it's even hard to make statements yet about which groups are more affected. But what I can tell you is that our work suggests that this is happening for somewhat different reasons for different students, and that the two things that I'm most taken by are that, number one, there's a group of people who frankly grew up struggling with food insecurity as, as children mm -hmm. and have always been struggling with food insecurity, and that's why they came to college. And of course, struggling with food insecurity doesn't go away when you go to college. Right. So that's one group. But there is another group, and that's a group of people who I would say are, are what they would call middle class. And it's the fact that they're in college and that they're struggling to, p to pay such high prices uh, while getting too little financial aid that is creating the struggles with food insecurity. And in those cases, I think those people don't look what you might imagine as, as, you know, as somebody who would be food insecure. And they're very ill-equipped to deal with it because they have no experience, for example, locating a food pantry or getting themselves on, you know, on food stamps. So those are the sorts of groups that we're seeing. All right. Um, and, and now I want to, I want to turn to you, Nate. Um, the MSU Student Food Bank is, is very well known um, and, and established. Can you kind of fill us in on the backstory of how and when it was founded and, and maybe 
yeah. <laughs> Let's start there. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, well, the food bank, <clears throat> excuse me, the food bank was founded uh, here at MSU, uh, and we are, we call ourselves, just a note for anyone who's concerned about the uh, nomenclature, we call ourselves a food bank, and that's what we've been called from the start, but we're actually sort of the role of a food pantry. If people are concerned about that distinction, we're really a food pantry, but we call ourselves a food bank. Meaning, Anyways, meaning you don't serve hot meals. It's, it's... Right, and we don't, and we provide service directly to clients, so we don't provide uh, food to other agencies as well. We provide, we're a direct, uh, frontline, if you will, um, mm-hmm. service provider to uh, clients directly. Mm-hmm. Um, back in nine, the early 90s, there was a group uh, primarily of graduate students on our campus that worked with members of our clerical technical union uh, uh, here at MSU on Thanksgiving baskets and holiday baskets for students that were staying on campus over the break. And as they were working on the project, um, this, through their own discovery, sort of serendipitously realized that, hey, you know, there's a food need amongst the folks we see and work with, um, not just at the holidays, but year-round. And so, um, I'm, I don't know if you can hear that, but I'm in a I health can. center, and so we get these PA announcements. Oh. <laughs> I apologize about that. Um, but so they decided, well, you know, we need to do something at times other than just holidays we need to have a year-round program so they got together got a group together and that's really where the food pantry our food bank was born out of those thanksgiving baskets and it's grown ever since our officially founding our official founding date is in 1993 so we've been around for 20 plus years wow um, and have really grown um and become really i think a part of the msu fabric the the community fabric really just uh, viewed as a, a resource here on campus that is no more um, that it's no different than, say, going to the financial aid office or the uh, a student resource center or something like that. We're just really part of the overall campus community uh, and campus structure, and so it really allows us to break down some barriers in terms of uh, having students come and utilize our services. Right, and I and I want to I want to ask about stigma in a minute, but before before we do Triada, I want to turn to you. I haven't I haven't forgotten about you. <laughs> also, I'm very excited that Triada is in the studio with me today. So, um, um, definitely want to ask you about your experience. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about the the food bank for New York City generally, and and um, how this issue is affecting students in New York specifically? Sure, and um, piggyback backing off of Nate's distinction of, you know, food pantry, food bank, mm-hmm. I would say the the analog in the retail world would be the food pantry is kind of the, the storefront retailer. Right. A food bank is almost like a wholesale distributor. So uh-huh. we serve a network of close to a thousand food pantries, soup kitchens, community-based organizations, and schools across New York City. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, We've been around for a little more than 30 years at this point. Uh, We were founded in the early 1980s when most of the food banks in the country uh, got their start. And we've evolved over time to offer services beyond um, simply supplying food for people to have in their moments of need and looking at some of the underlying causes of hunger and food insecurity. And, you know, that's taken our organization from providing the food to also looking at ways to connect people with more sustainable income supports and nutrition assistance benefits and working on policy and research and advocacy to get at the underlying causes of hunger. Right. So really comprehensive Mm -hmm. organization. And what work um, does the food bank do with this whole, uh, you know, idea that's this whole problem of campus hunger? 
Yeah, you know, in 2011, the City University of New York, and it's not a single university campus, it is a whole series of campuses across New York City. It actually has about 260,000 degree-seeking undergrads. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's CUNY, known, yeah, known as CUNY. Exactly. <laughs> CUNY released, uh, public health researchers at CUNY released a student undergrad survey that they had done asking about food insecurity, financial ins- uh, and housing instability, and similar uh, issues among student among the student population. And they found, they asked a modified version of what the USDA asks when they survey the entire population about food insecurity. But they found about 40% of CUNY undergrads were experiencing food insecurity. Wow. And so when you think about the size of their student population, that's about 100,000 students. It's unbelievable. Um, we learned about that. That was a wake-up call for us. The year that they released their study, we worked with them to open up campus pantries on three of their campuses. At this point, we have... Uh, eight campus pantries in the CUNY system and are slated to, you know, we have a, uh, we're working with them campus by campus to start more up. And, you know, campus pantries can meet a student's immediate food needs, and it's an important uh, resource. And I think it's amazing that MSU has had one since 93 and that's, that it's become so ingrained in the fabric of the school because stigma is an issue mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. And one of the cautions on the CUNY study was that, um, you know, one of the potential limitations of the study was underreporting of need because of the stigma associated with right. poverty, with food insecurity, with all of these issues. Uh, so people being reluctant to really Come fully forward. disclose, yeah. And is that do you see that um, happening at the national level in general with with say SNAP recipients underreporting? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't use. I mean, the the census asks the question. There, one of the census surveys. I don't remember if it's um, ACS, but it might be. Asks about um, you know, is there a SNAP recipient in your household? And the numbers are always. Much lower than state agencies report actually having recipients on their rolls. So the agencies that administer the program say if there are this many participants, right. and the people asked about it in the census underreport fairly substantially. So we don't actually use those numbers. Um, Nate, what what in your opinion? Um is the role of uh, the campus meal plan in in either helping or, or hindering uh, this issue? Can you talk to me a little bit about kind of the yeah the the role that dining services and cafeterias play? Well, sure. I think it's you know I think one thing that we need to sort of establish early on is that each campus has its own particular context and situation and and um, an environment that makes each sort of place a unique. Uh, study, if you will. So um, here at MSU, the experience that a lot of our undergraduates um, go, go through, almost all of them, uh, as freshmen, they're required to live in the residence halls. And MSU now has um, a uh, all-you-can-eat, or excuse me, unlimited um, meal plan for 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 students that live in the in the residence halls. So freshmen and anyone who lives in the residence halls have you know basically access 24/7 access to food. Um, and so we don't see many uh, um, uh, freshmen, sophomore uh, students at the food bank because most of them are utilizing the dining services. Um, and but those cost money, right? Those cost money, uh, and so that's I think where that question of financial aid comes in and how much uh, support the students are getting in terms of 
addressing the overall cost of attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, at MSU, like I said, freshmen don't have a choice. They have to live in the residence halls. So um, we don't see many of them here at the food bank. But um, And I do think that that is sort of part of that where we get, I think, at least from an outside perspective, get some of the perceptions, oh, you know, the freshman 15 and students aren't really yeah, hungry. I'm, and I'm familiar with that concept. Over actually getting regular food, those kinds of things. I think that's where a lot of those perceptions come in because at MSU, we have a, not as big as, a, as a CUNY, but we have a very big uh, undergraduate student population that in, for most intents and purposes really would fall into that traditional student definition. They're second or third generation students, support from home right out of high school. That's the vast majority of our undergraduate student population here at MSU. Uh, But we do have segments of the student population in our undergraduate student population that, um, you know, fall into the non-traditional category or don't have as much support from home. So we will see those students, especially once they leave the residence halls. And the other thing that's unique about MSU is being a large research institution with about 12,000 professional and, uh, and graduate students on our campus. Uh, the vast majority of the students we actually serve at our food bank uh, are graduate students. We're about 65% graduate students in terms of the number of students we serve. Um, and so that is a little bit of a unique context about being at a large research institution that's obviously going to be different than a community college or a regional institution. So that's one of the particular things that's unique to us is the num- large number of graduate students that we serve. Okay. And, and um, Sarah, I want to kind of turn back to you. So it's, it's clear that campus hunger has been around. It's not, a new, it's not a new concept. So it's been an issue for quite some time. But it seems that it's only recently kind of started to um, be reported on in greater detail. Is this because so many more students have been affected with the, say, 2008 financial crisis? Or, or, or why do you think that um, uh, this is? You know, I don't know that we know whether this is more students than before, less, or the same. The truth is that we have never taken the time to track it before. I think it's possible this is more people than it's been before um, because we've expanded access to higher education for a much wider swath of Americans from a variety of family backgrounds, and and the price of higher education has gone up so much. I think the reason that we're hearing more about it right now Um, has to do with the broader narrative about the issues of college affordability and that this is something that people are talking about at this time more than they have ever before. Um, It's also the case, of course, that the more that researchers uh, draw attention to something, at least it gets a little bit more, uh, you know, awareness. But um, people like Wick Sloan at the Bunker Hill Community College, just as an example, have been trying valiantly for years to say this is happening to my students and someone needs to step up and do something. Um, I'm just glad it's getting traction. Right. Okay. So we're going to take a a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. Um, And when we come back, we're going to get more into uh, what can be done about this, this issue.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Sarah goldrick Robb, Nate Smith-Tig, and Triada Stampus about the issue of food insecurity at U.S. colleges and universities. So before the break, Sarah, um, you started uh, talking a little bit more about the uh, rise in general enrollment among universities. Um, and I know that it's not so simple as just kind of pointing a finger in terms of the blame, but I mean, it, what would you say is like, you know, the main culprit of sort of this this situation that we find ourselves in with, with food insecurity and campus hunger, is now, hunger now? Is it the cost of education is too high? Food is too expensive? What, what do you think that, you know, can explain yeah. this? Well, I, I would say that it's, I would put it a little bit differently. I think the main problem that we have is that we have failed to recognize that the uh, undergraduate in American higher education has changed over time. And we have not equipped our colleges and universities and changed our policies to meet the needs of today's students. Instead, we have clung to the idea that the people who go to college come from wealthy families and live on campus where their meal plans take care of them and you know they're able to make ends meet. We have failed to recognize that only 13% of undergraduates live on campus, that meal plans are incredibly expensive, that the federal Pell Grant doesn't pay for what it used to, Mm -hmm. and that we've been remiss in not building uh, the kinds of programs to support people who are going to college the way that we've at least attempted to build programs to support people uh, more generally. We've seemed to pretend like undergraduates live protected lives, shielded from these issues, when of course that's not the case. Triada, you're you're nodding mm-hmm. next to me. Did did, uh, <laughs> did any of that resonate with you? Uh, absolutely, and I realize um, we're on the radio, so silent nods, really. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's <laughs> um, they but, translate. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when when I think about this, I really think about um, SNAP, the food stamp program, and um, you know, in constructing policies around you know, SNAP treats students very differently than it treats um, other recipients of the program. They're in this weird space where um, they're not treated like minors, and in fact, students get bumped off of their parents. If their parents are receiving SNAP, they get bumped off of their parents' household benefits at age 22, even if they're still in school. And in a city like New York, about a quarter of undergrads in the CUNY system are over the age of 25. Yeah. Um, so, you know, non-traditional students um, have a hard time applying for benefits on their own and also have a hard time staying on and aren't able to stay on their parents' benefits, which then also imposes hardship on their entire family when they age out. Um, and are not necessarily working full-time because they're in school, so they're not able to bring resources into the home, and suddenly their family has fewer food benefits uh, every month, it becomes a problem. So it's an example of, you know, what Sarah's referring to about policies not really being designed around today's reality and what the college population looks like more and more. 
it is what we're calling non-traditional students. So students who might be older, students who might be self-supporting, um, and those are the types of students that um, have are disproportionately experiencing food insecurity on campus. So what are some of the um, policy prescriptions? I want to kind of pe- like parse out some of them that you would maybe put forward as viable. Yeah. And, and I focus on SNAP in part, be- I mean, in large part, because it is our country's first line of defense against mm-hmm. hunger. It is one of our few remaining entitlement programs, although if... Um, the current leadership of the House of Representatives has its way, that would change, but it is an entitlement program. It's an enti- it's robust, and it has been demonstrated to work. Mm-hmm. Um, when we went into recession and SNAP benefits were increased as part of the recovery package, that increase has been associated with a decrease in food insecurity. Um, and it's also associated with better public health outcomes. Um, so it's something that is... It is a successful program. It does exactly what it's supposed to be doing. And it's so out of reach of most students. So, um, you know, every five years, the Farm Bill comes around. It's an opportunity. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> you well know. Ah, uh, yes. The Farm Bill. <laughs> um, it comes around, and that's where SNAP lives legislatively. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's already the House Agriculture Committee is in the midst of a two-year fact-finding period on SNAP in order to make recommendations about the program. Uh, so even though we're a couple of years out from the next Farm Bill, there's, there is activity and there is thinking around um, around that, you know, around SNAP issues. And looking at student eligibility, particularly that age limit, particularly some of the restrictions. So in order to receive SNAP, most college students who are enrolled more than part-time can't get SNAP benefits unless they're also working at least 20 hours a week. And that is... Uh, an incredibly tough um, day-to-day life to maintain. It's taxing, especially if you're in school full-time, yeah. Right. So it's, you know, a lot of lower-income students are in a situation where their immediate survival needs are pitted against achieving their long-term potential because that's what they're in school for. And uh, so, so you know, SNAP is really the, 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 the place to look in the policy arena that would have the biggest, that would yield the biggest bang for the buck and the biggest improvement, I think, in the lives of college students who are food insecure. And so there's the federal arena, but there's also some discretion at the state level around what is considered, um, what, what offerings in the higher education arena are considered um, sort of vocational vocationally directed and you know employment and training type programs that can be classified for snap purposes to count against that 20 hour a week requirement mm-hmm. so there are ways to get courses of study um, classified um, for snap purposes as training towards employment so for a person who's studying to be a physician's assistant for a person who's studying in a nursing program or in some you know other sort of clearly vocationally directed they yeah they can count that as as work hours basically correct for the purposes of snap sarah is that something that you have um ex- like uh, seen in, in some of your policy research yeah i have and i very much support the idea that i mean frankly it's ridiculous that going to college isn't counting as work you know for for snap receipt right. but mm-hmm. frankly we've seen the same thing when it comes to to tanf right um so which is you know, it's not surprising but um, one thing that's often mentioned is, you know, why don't these students just do work study? 
and I think it's really important for your listeners to know that the work-study program is an extremely promising program, but it is severely underfunded and, frankly, badly allocated. Mm -hmm. So um, less than one in ten Pell Grant recipients who are the low-income students in public colleges or universities is receiving the work-study assistance for which they are, in fact, eligible due to program underfunding. So, um, but what people can do, uh, although this isn't uh, something people always widely disseminate, is sometimes you can put a student on the wait list for work study and count that towards the work requirement for SNAP. Um, that's uh, something that folks could explore doing. But I would like to add that in addition to SNAP, we've made a proposal for uh, rethinking the, the National School Lunch Program. Uh, to be inclusive at least of the nation's community colleges. Now, this would require redefining what a school is in the program, and it would also redefine children, <laughs> frankly. Right. Um, but the intent of the program, which is to ensure that people are fed so that they can learn, would certainly seem to align with the idea that there's a falsehood in that assuming that 12th grade is the natural end of education and that states have a commitment to provide at least the education needed for the workforce, which frankly includes at least the 13th and 14th years. So that's another effort that at least at the Wisconsin Hope Lab we're trying to advance, which is to um, enable uh, you know institutions uh, to at least provide the lunch, if not even the breakfast as well. And I mean, frankly, the backpack programs would also be great. Um, Nate, I want to turn to you. There, there are some. There are some some people who criticize food pantries for their um, temporariness and, and and say that they don't address the structural issues of the hunger problem. In your opinion, is that um, different on college campuses, or, or do you think that that applies as well? Well, I think that I, I mean that's a valid criticism, and I never talked to anyone in all in my uh, experiences here running the MSU Student Food Bank that also runs a food program. That ultimate goal wouldn't be to actually close up their shop. I mean, right. everyone who's in this business, if you want to call it that, you know, really believes that the ultimate solution is is ending food insecurity. Now, but as part of that, we have to make sure that people are fed. In the in the in, as we wait for these policy solutions and trying to address the broader issues, we have to make sure people have enough to eat in the meantime. And I think that's one of the roles we fill. But we also have to be cognizant and, and advocate for um, those long-term solutions so that we can, you know, hopefully reach that point where we can close our shop up. And I think part of the, and I, these are really great discussions about SNAP and um, the uh, and the free and reduced lunch program. But I also think too that. Being someone who sort of has my uh, feet in both waters of the food insecurity uh, issues and then also in the higher education policy area, I think that one of the things in taking that step back and maybe taking an even broader view is really viewing this in the discussion of the context of higher education as a public versus a private good. Mm -hmm. And I think we've had this philosophical shift over time beginning in the 70s to this view and this notion that p higher education, whether it's public or private, is a, it, or public and higher education is a private good. And we used to have a view that it was a public good, that it provided benefit not only to the student but to society writ large. And that part of the problem that we're seeing, and, and whether it's increasing the cost of attendance, reduction in state appropriations is a, is a portion of university general fund budgets, which leads to higher tuition, the shift from grants to scholar, to, excuse me, from grants and scholarships to loans, all of these policy uh, moves that have occurred over time are really 
part of this overall shift in philosophy from the notion of a public good to a private good. And I think we have to have a broader discussion, too, about viewing higher education as a public good once again. And then we can get into and delve into a lot of these specific policy issues and policy programs. But if we don't sort of begin to shift the overall discussion back to viewing higher education as a public good, um, we're going to meet a lot more resistance. And I think that once people sort of understand the case and view it from that different sort of philosophical context of, of, of getting back to the notion of a public good, that those other policy solutions become a lot easier to tackle and, and take on. And, and so, so I think that that sounds amazing. There was a lot of vigorous nodding <laughs> in the studio for those I, of you listening. And I have to jump in real quick, Jenna. I'm really sorry. It's, it's, I'm at the end of my time. Yep. So I'm going to have to run. Sarah, but thank a you. a wonderful discussion, and I look forward to having more of it with everybody involved. Thank you, Sarah, so much thank for joining you. us. And we're just going to we're gonna stay on a, a, a few more minutes um, with Triada and Nate. Nate, so, so short of kind of changing the – I mean – so it goes out to saying that we need to have a broader conversation, right? But in the in the near term, um, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing that extends beyond MSU's campus um, with the College and University um, Food Bank Alliance? Sure. Um, well, being the oh, well, Michigan State refers to itself as a pioneer land grant institution, so. Uh, we sort of pig- piggybacked on that and refer to ourselves as a pioneer campus food pantry. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it. Uh, we would always, and still to this, uh, this very week, receive um, inquiries and contacts from other campuses that are seeking to uh, add a program to their campus or uh, have started up and are asking some questions. Um, so we would receive a lot of uh, a lot of inquiries from campuses across the country and across sectors. So community colleges, private liberal arts schools, regional institutions, other large research institutions. Um, and as I was working on this a couple of years ago, I came across someone and sort of mentioned the idea to sort of talking out loud with them. But wouldn't it be great if we had a, a resource point, a uh, a connection point that uh, people could talk and share ideas and share their experiences and and um, you know, get talking because a lot of times what happens, when, especially when you're working on a campus-based food pantry, is you're sort of on an island because uh, the people, the community-based uh, agency, um, have some different issues. They aren't necessarily dealing directly with college students, so there's some different context between a campus-based program and a community-based program. And when you're on a campus and you're trying to address food insecurity, there's at this point really not a lot of other people that are thinking about it. There might be some are working on. It. There might be some people that are thinking about it and they are concerned about it and they're trying to do what they can at the periphery, but in terms of actually starting a program, they haven't done it. So if you're starting this program and you're sort of starting fresh, you're sort of operating on an island. Um, And so the idea behind KUFA is I sort of discussed it with this one person. I can't remember what institution they were from. Um, They mentioned, hey, you know, I talked to somebody at Oregon State who was talking about the same thing. And I said, oh, really, what was their name? And so I got connected with Claire Cady, and Claire at the time was uh, director of the uh, Student Resource Center at Oregon State, and also, uh, which included the food pantry on campus at Oregon State. And she and I had this discussion. We're like, yeah, we're exactly thinking about the exact same thing. And that's really the birth of the College University Food Bank Alliance back in 2012, uh, late 2012, early 2013, was this notion of having um, a resource point, a connection point, for everyone working on this across the country to share experience or share best practices, um, have a sounding board for ideas, and really see that they're not not alone, that there are other people working on this, and even though they may feel alone on their campus, this is part, they're part of, an, of a bigger movement, if you will. 
Uh, and so when we started Kufa, we had 17 members, and the last time I looked, um, we had 286 members. So, and we know that's not even all inclusive of all the different campuses that have food pantries or food programs. So we really have seen this growth in this in this uh, in this movement. Like I said, uh, from the very early stages when I, we think it, as far as we can tell at MSU, we were sort of the only one. To now, there's probably 300 plus. Uh, programs in the country, and I think it really is reflective of this overall awareness of the issue, mm-hmm. and then also, um, you know, part of what what Sarah said is recognizing that this hidden population has always been there, and then really seeing that acute need that was really born out of the Great Recession, all sort of culminating into this bigger sort of uh, moment when people are starting to recognize it as an issue and want to do something about it. And um, on behalf of Sarah, because she had to jump off, I do want to um, put in a plug. She is. Um, um, her organization uh, is, or, um, yeah, is responsible for um, a national convening coming up in late April um, to talk about food and housing insecurity among undergraduates. So that is um, going to be a wonderful event uh, in the Milwaukee area, open to the public, I believe. So um, to your point about kind of raising awareness and continuing the conversation, I would encourage all of all of those listening in that area to uh, check out her event. And Triada, last but last but. <laughs> Certainly not least. Do you want to do you want to weigh in on on um, what you would sort of suggest people do in the interim, um, in the more in the more immediate term to kind of move the needle on this issue? Well, you know, I, I first want to just sort of say a big yes and to. Um, you know, a yes Nate and, <laughs> a yes and to, to Nate's um, Nate's uh, comment and conversation about you know there's a lot that um, those who run campus pantries can learn from each other because they are in a specialized setting. And there is a lot that they can learn and teach from those who provide pantry services in a community-based setting. One of the really neat things that we're seeing in how the educational missions of a, of a university and sort of the the support service uh, function of a pantry come together is students who uh, nutrition students providing nutrition education at campus pantries, the business students taking charge of inventory management and learning business processes mm-hmm. at the campus pantry. So it becomes this lear- this it becomes another learning environment mm-hmm. and. In the community-based settings, which tend to be in New York and in much of the country, uh, run by older people, primarily out of faith-based organizations, there is a a real opportunity for... the campus pantry environment to become an incubator of best practices and to become a way of uh, experimenting with and learning about and then teaching back to the community-based service providers uh, newer, different ways to do things and enhance services and all that. So it's it, it actually is a great opportunity. really great opportunity yeah. and, and creates some really um, neat dynamics. Absolutely. For sure, for sure. Um, any other final thoughts for, before we wrap up, Triada, kind of on the issue or, or um, what you would encourage your your uh, fellow listeners to do about this issue if they're so? You know, final thought for me, and I, and I actually just came here from a community-based organization in Sunset Park, another neighborhood here in Brooklyn, uh, it's tax season. And for working students, as for all other working people, 
the tax moment, uh, especially for low income, is an incredible opportunity because it is a way to access the earned income tax credit um, for students, especially who are self-supporting, so they're not a dependent on anybody else's tax return. And getting those um, tax services for free is an option everywhere in the country. There, the IRS um, runs and supports a volunteer income tax assistance program. We're a huge provider here in New York City. We do it at CUNY campuses across the city as well as in community-based settings. Um, but I would encourage your listeners, especially in this moment, we've got a few weeks left of tax season, uh, to make sure that um, if you haven't gotten your taxes done and you qualify for free tax assistance services to go, every tax preparer is IRS certified. And that is, uh, you know, the earned income tax credit could be the biggest check um, that right. a person gets in a year and not to have to uh, put any of those dollars in anybody else's pocket but your own is a big deal. <laughs> um, and for those especially struggling with housing instability, food insecurity, all of those issues, I mean, there's a reason why we provide it on college campuses as we do in other places. Right. Well, great. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guests so very much, Sarah Goldrick-Robb, Nate smith Tig, and Triada Stampus for joining us today. Our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler and myself, and our wonderful intern is Austin Brunarski. Show music is by the very talented Tim Archer. I want to thank our sponsors and our show engineer, David Tedashore. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.